Who is that crazy lady? That's my wife, by the way, for those of you who don't know, just, just in case you're sitting there going, what a jerk. Good morning. For centuries, the believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, have on Easter morning, on Resurrection Sunday, carried on a tradition where they greet one another with the phrase, He is risen, and the response is, He is risen indeed. It's an encouragement to one another. It's a, it's a way for us to proclaim our faith and the truth that Jesus Christ is written. So as you're passing those sermon outlines down the way there, if you haven't yet, we're going to carry on the tradition that uh, even as we speak, as we're gathered here, millions of believers the world over are saying this phrase. And so as an act of unity, as a, as a way for us to, to declare the praises of the risen Christ, I ask you to repeat and proclaim with me that phrase, He is risen! He is risen indeed. Indeed He is. If you've got those sermon outlines, uh, there's not much in the way of an outline. And as you've already seen, uh, what we were supposed to do in Hebrews, uh, we're just going to let it go a week, and we're going to finish up Hebrews next week. Uh, truth be told, I got about ten hours into my sermon prep and I'm thinking, okay, I've uh, got to make this fit with Easter. And I ended up deciding it would be sort of disingenuous uh, to Hebrews to impose Easter. Even though it's there, folks, we could have talked about that. But we'll come back to Hebrews uh, next week. So today, we're going to be in, in mostly Luke 24 and then also in Acts 1. Those two places are where we're going to spend most of our time. Last week uh, was Palm Sunday, of course. Uh, that's when we think of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, riding humble on a donkey as the servant king who was welcomed with, with branches and the shouting of his followers who were cheering, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And today, we will study the resurrection of Christ, especially focusing on that part after his resurrection, which is called his ascension. That time when he went up into glory, taken to be back with God the Father. If you thought we were going to see him raised this morning, I'm sorry, you're late. We mourned Friday and fasted Friday when uh, Jesus' crucifixion happened. And then this morning, uh, there were a bunch of us here, about 75 of us on the steps in the front, who got together and had a sunrise service where we looked into the empty tomb and took that as encouragement for us to go out into the world to declare that He has risen indeed. So, so to catch you up to speed, for those who've missed those services Friday and early this morning, we have seen the Messiah crucified and buried and raised to life. And in good southern charm fashion, we topped it off with a country breakfast this morning. So thanks to those men who got up crazy early. There is a lot more to say about Christ's resurrection. And this morning, we're going to look at a, at a bit of a neglected part of the last days of Jesus' time on earth. After his resurrection, his last words to his disciples and his ascension. This is what we're calling Jesus' exit strategy. 
This is Jesus' exit strategy here. Simply stated, what we're going to talk about today is that Jesus' strategy was to leave the church, his body here on earth, leave the church with power from on high for carrying on what Jesus came and started. You see, his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension are the beginning of you and me. It's the beginning of the church when he came to bring power from on high. So Jesus' exit strategy is to leave the church with power from on high for carrying on what he started. Just think about that. Think about how miserably ill-equipped you and I are to carry on that message and that mission that Jesus started if it were left up to us. There is no plan B in Jesus' exit strategy. He left this work in our hands as the body of Christ, provided that we live in the power of the risen Christ. Now, this was essential for that fledgling church, that first group of believers who were ripe for a mission for their lives because Jesus had just left them. And they're thinking to themselves, what next, Jesus? Where do we go from here? You see, we don't just leave it at an empty tomb. or We don't just leave it at stating the truth that Jesus is alive. We say he is alive for a cause. Jesus is alive for a reason. If we would have a part in his sufferings and his death and his burial and his resurrection, then we must also have a part in his supreme mission to proclaim the truth of how he changes our lives. That's risen Christ living. His death and his resurrection, in fact, are in vain if we sit as believers, if we sit on our laurels of freedom from sin to enjoy ourselves. If we kick our feet up, put our hands behind our heads, and enjoy life on our terms after the resurrection, then that's a perversely selfish way to live. Because what that does is it makes a farce of Jesus' risen life if we do not continue his mission with the power that he promised us. Let's read together our passage that we're focusing on this morning. It's from Luke, the 24th chapter. And we're going to read uh, two sections here, uh, 1 through 12, and then 44 through 53. If you don't have your, your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to do that. We're Luke 24. 1 through 12 is that first section, and then 44 through 53. Let's go ahead and read it together here. Luke 24, 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living 
among the dead. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day arise? And they remembered his words, verse 8. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is next, this next part here in 44 and following is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Verse 44, he says this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. You see, after the resurrection... Jesus appeared a number of times, but this last time about which we've just read is the ascension of Jesus, him being taken up from them on a cloud received out of their sight by God the Father. We see this transition from his death and burial and resurrection and then to his ascension. And in between his resurrection and his ascension, he says right there at the end of that passage we've read, It is written that the Christ should suffer, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Look at Acts 1 for just a second. We're going to look at Acts 1, 8 to 11, and focus on those passage, that passage of uh, a few verses for just a minute here <clears throat> and make some application from these two passages. This recounts the ascension of Jesus as well. And if you'll remember, Acts is volume 2 of Luke. And so what we've just read in Luke is meant to fit with what we're about to read in Acts here. Here we go. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw go, as you saw him go into the heaven. So the last words that Jesus said in Luke 24 are clearly meant to be words to guide his disciples in that time after his resurrection. So keeping in mind these two passages, the crucial question that we need to ask is this. Did that power promised in Luke 24 and in Acts 1, did that power that he promised them was that something that was intended for just them to establish the church? Or is it something that we should seek from Jesus today? Let me ask it a couple different ways. Does the risen Christ make any real difference for you now? Does the risen Christ still have power for your life today? Or was that fanciful, highfalutin, one-time kind of an event for those people? Because, well, you know, they were with Jesus. I mean, we're not really, or are we? Does the risen Christ have power for us today? I believe that this kind of experience of the power of God that we read about here is exactly what Jesus meant in that word witness. It's what he meant by witnessing to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's exactly the kind of power that is meant to be experienced by us as witnesses to the truth of his resurrection because he's still, he's still on his throne. Jesus says, you will receive this power and you will be my witnesses. Luke 24, 48 and 49, we've read this before. It says, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That, that clothing of power was the Holy Spirit coming on their lives to equip them, to enable them to be the people God called them to be. Otherwise, they would not have done it and could not have done it. So those of us living in light of the risen Christ will no longer merely be advocates who can prove like a good lawyer that Jesus rose from the dead. But under the influence of that kind of power, this experience of the spirit of the risen Christ and the evidence of the empty tomb and the resurrection, we are enabled to speak with unwavering assurance of one who has tasted of grace personally and who knows the reality of the risen Christ so immediately and so directly and so personally in our lives that all doubt is gone as to whether the risen Christ has any effect in our lives today. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you're really wanting in your life? Is to know that God is who He says He is? And to experience that personally in your life? 
What happens in this transition is that we move from being an advocate of Christianity as nice principles for living to being a living, to being a living and breathing witness of a living Christ. We move from simply deducing Christian truths from valid premises to proclaiming them boldly as personally experienced realities. Many Christians have not made that transition, friends. That's the power and the witness that will take Christ to the ends of the earth. That is what Christ died for, so that you and I could live as witnesses of having experienced those truths. This is the difference between kick up your feet and enjoy the ride, churchianity, and risen Christ living. And Jesus rose so that you and I could have those truths personally experienced through the Holy Spirit to live as risen Christ kinds of people. There's a great preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones who uses this illustration to describe the difference between common Christian living and what happens when the Holy Spirit clothes a person with power or comes upon and clothes a person. He says, it is like a child walking along holding his father's hand. All is well. The child is happy. He feels secure. His father loves him. The child believes that his father loves him, but there is no unusual urge or need to talk about that or to sing about it or to proclaim to the world the truth. My daddy loves me. It's just something the kid knows. But if, the suddenly, if suddenly the father startles the kid, that child, by reaching down and sweeping him up into his arms and hugging him tightly and kissing him on the neck and whispering to his little boy, I love you so much. And then he holds that stunned child back, looking into his face so that he can say with all his heart, I am so glad that you are mine. And then he puts the child down and they continue to walk. This is what happens when a person lives in light of the risen Christ. A pleasant and happy walk with God is swept up into an unspeakable level of joy and of love and of assurance and the reality that leaves the Christian so utterly certain of the immediate reality of Jesus that he is overflowing in praise and more free and more bold in witness than he ever imagined he could be. Those subconscious doubts that once popped up every now and then are gone. And in their place is utter and indestructible assurance so that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and that to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. Isn't that what you really want? 
to know so personally and intimately that Jesus Christ's death and burial and resurrection and ascension is a way for Him to hold you in His arms and say that you are loved and you are mine. So that your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your money and your resources and everything you call your own is used for the proclamation of His glory. So that you can be someone clothed with power from on high to know intimately that your Father loves you. Isn't that what you really, really want? This is what happened for those first believers here in Luke. And it has happened again and again in the life of the church as it is filled with the risen Christ's power. They were so filled with the fullness of God, overwhelmed with the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, that they began, as Acts 2 says, to speak the wonders, literally, the greatnesses of God. Their mind and their heart was full of a fresh, new, breathtaking vision of God. And their mouth overflowed with prophetic praise. Sons and daughters, old and young, slave and free, living their lives in proclamation for the glory of God because He's a risen Christ. Because He's not in the tomb. Because it's empty and He went up into heaven and left His comforter like He said He would. So, I ask in closing, is it, is it for us as well? Or was it just something for that, for that first generation that Jesus promised His power? Quite clearly, Scripture answers, it is for us. The promise of His extraordinary power is available to us if we ascertain it by faith in His empty tomb and His, in the ascended and still risen Christ. The assignment is not yet complete, which means that he has not withdrawn his promise of power on his church. The mission is not over, which means what he promised those first believers is available to us as the body of Christ. The promise is valid till the mission is complete. Until the witness to Christ has been communicated among all of the unreached people groups of the world. And if we live and if we love the glory of God, if we long for His kingdom to advance, and if we have compassion on the lost and hurting people of the world, we will increasingly want that kind of power and we will seek to experience that kind of power in our lives which means, like those first believers, that we will cry out for it. Plead with. Demand from God to continue to give us His promise of power for life. For your life. For your families. For this church. In this place, we will plead for His power.
Bank on it. So come and join us in pleading for that kind of Holy Spirit, risen Christ power in your life. That we can be people who proclaim the risen Christ because we are his witnesses who are clothed with that power. Let's pray.